Hello and welcome to another episode of Revolutionary Dispatches. I'm Chris Wright. And I'm David Bryan. We're back. We are back. Again. Again. Now, there's something we should probably mention mm-hmm. right off the bat. The nature of our backness has been compromised by the fact that my computer is bad. Mm. <laughs> so, we recorded a podcast a week ago, almost almost till an hour. Mm. But, unfortunately, upon saving that podcast, David's end of the audio was preserved in wondrous, crystal clear, mm. stereo MP3 format. Mm. Unfortunately, my end of the podcast disappeared into the ether. So, yes. so we've got me talking, talking to myself. Yeah, which I may release as a as a curiosity. Yeah. <laughs> Try and work out what you were saying that I was responding to. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have had suggestions from unhelpful people that maybe <laughs> I should just listen to the David recording and then try and fill in the gaps which yeah, again would be to... a fun experiment yeah that's very true you'd also have to work out what what to say in order to make what i'm saying lead on from it correctly so yeah exactly you, you wouldn't just have to respond to what i'm saying no you'd have to I'd work have out to... what to say so that my responses make sense i would basically have to learn your lines as it were which would probably require listening to the podcast about 10 times yeah and then fill in the gaps it would have to be scripted i suppose i don't know i don't know if i could ad hoc that i'm not yeah, not about that improv. If you could have it in yeah. front of you, um, at least my parts, then mm. you'd know what was coming up next. That's true. It'd, be, mean, it'd be interesting. See, yeah. Yeah. But we're not art it, students. No, exactly. This isn't... We're not about... I mean, I do have a BA. Yeah. So yeah I te- technically, I'm an art student in the loosest possible sense of the term. But um, they become theatre. And nobody wants that. Or performance art. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever I think of performance art, I just think of that terrible, terrible scene from Rent, which mm. is a bad film and you should watch. <laughs> but uh, it's just have you seen it because if you haven't that's not any sense no right well then there's no sense well, I'll, tell you what, might have heard of it. I'll tell you what I will link the scene I mean in the, in the show notes okay, that's great. what I'll do and then everyone can enjoy it at once it's a bit from but Alexis if you've Sales seen... autobiography where he's, he yeah. went to art school and he came in um, he came in on a weekend for some reason because he left something in his locker or, or whatever and so it was deserted right. but he heard some sort of noise from the canteen and so he went in to see what was happening and there was someone dragging a tree through the canteen and he, he shouted at them, what are you doing? And they said, it's performance art. And he said, but there's nobody here. And they said, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I, I don't really understand art. It's <laughs> a very I, broad statement there. <laughs> I, I, no, I'm, I'm willing to make it. Oh, I enough. really don't get it. It's, I mean... Paintings can be pretty, I suppose, but I don't get the, I don't get the whole... I don't get art. Fair enough. I think I, I fundamentally have a, a too too mecha- mechanistic a, a, a worldview. Too literal a, a view on things. Not literal exactly. I mean, I enjoy novels. I suppose that's mm. art. I suppose but, it is. But um, you know, my favourite paintings are all like either Hieronymus Bosch and just no one knows what's going on, but it looks vaguely metal, or like quite realistic portrayals of interesting things, like Goya's Saturn devouring his son is probably that's my favourite painting. Funny. Yeah, but I don't. I don't. What I don't get is abstract or impressionist art for the first yeah. time ever. <laughs> really? Yeah, coincidence. Yeah, it's a good painting. Yes, it's part of the black paintings, which are he painted them on the inside of his house, didn't he? Yeah, the murals that were painted yeah. onto the plaster of his wall, and Saturn devouring his son was in the dining room. Yeah, which I think is great. <laughs> but yeah, he painted them because he had a he had a I can't remember what disease it was, but it basically left him virtually deaf, and, and mm. it was quite quite bad. It nearly killed him, and then he was just just quite depressed for a bit. Yeah. So, because he originally started off as a Rococo artist, and all his paintings are sort of bright and full of life and mm. joy, and then he got depressed by like, the, the 
there was the revolt. Um, yeah, I was going to say Spain was Spain was uh, pain. Spain was backsliding politically at the time as well. Yes, exactly. Um, and yeah, that's what Saturn and Daring Sun is supposed to portray: is mm. the, the the beast of of reactionary autocracy devouring the the child of the Enlightenment. Mm. Nothing changes. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> ah, ah. Satire. Ah, Literally We've satire. done a satire. Yeah. <laughs> we have done a satire. So yeah, anyway, so basically the point is that all of our talking points for today are essentially a week old. Hmm. Obviously, on certain stories, there are things that have happened since, which we will be taking into account, but largely... The Saturn of hap- your computer devoured the, yes. the Olympian of... <laughs> I'm not going to finish the metaphor. Of my half of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So all our, everything that's happened in the last week, pretty much, is going to have to wait until next week, yes. where we will be attempting to catch up. So Tommy Robinson, Zimbabwe, all of that nonsense. Mm-hmm. That's that's coming at you in a week's time. All very interesting stuff. Very interesting, and we will get around to it. But if Something we crammed it into this... Than... Yeah, well, <laughs> it isn't, it isn't. But if we crammed it into this podcast, then it would be about three hours long, yeah. and no one would listen. Yes. Yeah, and the fine. last... The original version of this, by the way, was nearly two hours as it was. Mm. So, my well, the, God. The schedule is every two weeks, but because of that, we're a week late this week, but we'll be back on schedule next week. Hopefully. Barring catastrophe. So our, our third episode after being back will be mm. four weeks after our first episode. Yes. It's just the middle one will be slightly late. And if that hasn't made things clear, then yes. I suggest you go away and have a long, hard think about what you've done. Yes. <laughs> Draw a graph. It'll make sense. So, our first sort of little story is the fact that the Department for Exiting the European Union yes. is now pointless. Yes, I forgot about that. Yeah. Well, it happened a, a week ago, so, yes. so that's why you have. The management of the Brexit process is to an even greater extent than it already was being taken away from the Department for Exiting the EU and being brought into the control of number 10. Yeah. So now Theresa May, through uh, one of her civil servants, Ollie Robinson, I think, is now directing personally the entirety of the Brexit process, both officially and in practice, leaving the new Secretary of State for Exiting the European Union, Mr. Dominic Raab, um, basically nothing to do except stockpile food Hmm. That's another interesting thing I've seen. But I think it was the Sunday Times, but a lot of the kind of the Leave side have been making out that the fact that Rab and, and, and Britain as a whole are, are stockpiling food and medicines is some kind of like heroic, like we are we're taking on this hardship and sacrifice. Uh, this is you know the great British spirit, the Blitz spirit's coming back. It's like rationing, you know, yeah. it's, it's that kind of self, you know, oh, back in my day kind of. It, it, no, this is this is a this is a disaster. This is a we are the United Kingdom, one of the richest countries on the planet, is having to stockpile food against the possibility of having no food. It's completely because, self-inflicted as well. <laughs> yeah, completely self-inflicted because we haven't been self-sufficient in food production for a hundred years no. because of capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> but it is because of capitalism. You wouldn't have had that under the feudal system. That's very true. If you weren't self-sufficient under the feudal system, you starved yeah. to death. <laughs> We have the technology to import food now. That's the problem. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I I stand by that statement. All right, fair enough. Yep. Can't disagree with it. I prefer feudalism. No, obviously <laughs> I prefer socialism, but if I had to choose between capitalism and feudalism, I prefer feudalism. Really? Yeah. That's the definition of reactionary. <laughs> <laughs> That's how much I hate capitalism, David. <laughs> it's my I hate capitalism badge. I've got to earn it somehow. Bring back uh, Henry VII. <laughs> Why the seventh? I don't know. It was after him. It started to get a bit less feudal. 
I mean, I would say that by Henry VII's reign, feudalism had already really kind of started to break down. Yes. I think you really want Edward I, if you want to be, mm. you know, I mean, he, he conquered the Welsh. It's the conclusion of that's the conquest bad. of Wales. And I was thinking the Wars of the Roses was the point when it's sort of, that's a, a major turning point. Well, the, it's when the political the manifestation of feudalism starts to break down, but the yeah. economic system really... Really have been disintegrating from the from the 13th century. Anyway, let's let's not get into this. Yes, <laughs> Department for Exiting the EU. Yeah, so that's no longer really a thing. Well, yes. So, what has particularly annoyed the Brexit side of the Tory Party about this is that they see this as their influence over Brexit being taken away to a great extent. Would you agree? I would indeed. Yeah. Sorry, I thought you were going to go on. I didn't want to. No, I'm not, you. I might go on. Um, I'm cognizant of the fact that I often, I often come in too quick. So no, no, I'm, that's being, right. I'm being a good boy. No, thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Do carry on. Right. So the thing is, they have the the grassroots Brexit people, the people who've wanted Brexit for a long time, have never really been in control of this process, and it wasn't the strength of their movement that ended up making Brexit happen. It, well, to an extent, it was, but it was also made possible by the mistakes of the Cameron government. Because mm. they were they promised a Brexit referendum in 2015 to try and win the election on the understanding that they either would never have to follow through on it because they probably wouldn't get a majority and they'd probably be in coalition with the Lib Dems so they could say, we can't do it, we're in coalition with the most pro-European party, sorry. Or they would definitely win the referendum and we'd be able to stay in the EU. So It's essentially a problem of overconfidence. Yes, a massive problem of overconfidence that traps the Remain side of the Tory party into that it's just everything's gone wrong for them over the past few years with the exception of the fact that they've managed to stay in government for some reason there was an interesting series that the bbc radio 4 did it's a three-part series i'll see if i can dig it out whether it's still available or not i don't know but if it is i'll certainly attempt to acquire it because um they were yeah they were basically going into the a deep dive into the cameron government and how the entire sort of structure of the cabinet government was so fundamentally based in the kind of old Etonian mindset mm. that Cameron and Osborne and people like that, they just didn't believe they could fail so that when the referendum came along, they didn't try that hard because they thought they had it in the bag. Mm. Then, oops, we've lost. And they just, it completely took them by surprise. They hadn't even, I think they saw a bit of it with the Scottish referendum, like how close that got to them losing. Mm. But that should have tipped them off that their approach was wrong, but apparently mm. it didn't. It was a really weird period of time. If you think about it, it doesn't it doesn't feel like the sort of thing that should happen in the 21st century that you end up with the people in both number 10 and number 11 and the mayor of London, which is arguably the most powerful single position because greater London power is so concentrated in the mayor, all mm. were at school together and at university together that they that were from this yeah. extremely select clique that had been groomed from for really for generations, but certainly for their whole lives for power. And they'd all together managed to do it and then they were at the top of british politics and controlled all the major posts it's really weird it's very aristocratic in a way that you don't expect to happen in a modern you know liberal democracy incredibly aristocratic mm. i mean the the cameron government was had a higher incidence of old Etonians than i think mo most of the governments even in the sort of the early 20th mm. century when you would have expected it to be much higher and also it says something about i think the, the argument for because a lot of the time when you talk about positive discrimination and things like that, a lot of the time you hear the argument, well, if you, you you want the best candidate for the job, don't you? So why would you want more women necessarily? Why would you want more working class people necessarily? What's, what's, what do you gain right. by that? I think what you gain, even if you put put aside all the other arguments for positive representation, of which there are many, but if it, I think what you gain in particular is multiple viewpoints and multiple perspectives and frameworks of mm. doing things. Because... You can really, I think, put Brexit down to the fact that it happened. You can really put it down to the fact that all the people at the top of the Cameron government basically believed that they 
could do no wrong and that they couldn't fail because they never had in their, hmm. in the past. And I think if you'd had, I think Gove is an example of of a person who maybe had a bit more savvy because he came from a yeah, working yeah. class background, but because he was kind of sidelined and people like him. If if for example George Osborne had had Gove's background, I don't think hmm. Brexit would have. Gove happened. was a Brexiteer anyway, so he wasn't campaigning for Remain in the first place. That's true. But yeah, but I think I think that is an important reason why having a diversity mm. of backgrounds is important on its own terms, even before you get into the fact that it then kind of yeah. has knock-on effects lower down. The, the, the but I think that this recent move of taking what little power the Department for Exiting the EU did have away from it is, I suppose it's, it's symptomatic of the way that the whole path to Brexit thus far has been managed from the top in a way that it's because it's often portrayed as a grassroots movement which to an extent it is there were activists who wanted it to happen who campaigned for it but it's it's Absolutely. very much been managed from the top from the start and i think if that wasn't true if it was grassroots it wouldn't have been so dominated by so there are lots of reasons why people might not like the eu but a very particular one of them was overwhelmingly dominant in the argument you didn't really get the left-wing argument for leaving the eu didn't really surface that much but i think it would have if it was a grassroots movement but because it was managed from the top you don't get that yeah. And even within the kind of the more traditional right wing arguments, the one that was massively over promoted is the argument of sovereignty, mm. which is something which after immigration was probably the biggest sticking point for, for the Brexit campaign. And it, the only reason it was after immigration was because Leave.eu realised that immigration was the way they, they could turn the tide mm. and, and get it through. That was a pragmatic decision. But the majority of the official Leave campaign position and certainly the personal beliefs of people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, who are kind of emblematic of the Brexiteer movement now. The reason they don't like the EU is because they feel that some kind of the British sovereignty is being infringed by its very membership of the European mm. Union. Even though they can very rarely point to a particular European law or regulation they don't actually like, they say, "Oh, well, you know, the EU makes whatever percentage that they claim of our laws." And we're like, "Yes, but most of those are regulations about fisheries. Yeah. Do you actually disagree with any of the regulations on fisheries?" If we were independent of the EU, which we will be very soon, mm. we would hopefully, it depends how it plays out, but hopefully we'll inscribe most of those regulations back into UK law anyway. Well, the, the actual mechanism for leaving the European Union will do that automatically. Mm. Like the the bill, the withdrawal bill, it, it's basically its function is to take every EU re- law directive regulation that we're signed up to, make it part of UK law, and then they can go through one by one and get rid of the bits exactly they don't like. Change. It w- but it wouldn't surprise me if basically nothing that was in those regulations does change because the thing is the vast majority of them are very very sensible and or very very mm. minor so no one cares you know yeah very much so the only the only things you might get changed are you know sort of the odd controversial law but there aren't very many yeah. of those like most of parliament's business is very very minor let alone the european commission which basically exists as like the bureaucrats bureaucrats mm. where, where did i start oh yeah sovereignty mm-hmm. argument massively overrepresented uh, within the, the the campaign, but but basically no one actually believes in it. That you know, it's it's a small clique of Tory backbenchers and Douglas Carswell, hmm. and then no yeah. other bugger. You know, no no one no one in the street gets furious about the fact that you know most regulations are made in Brussels. I mean, the only one that did sort of percolate through was the was the kind of the change to the metric system. But I think most people at this point have basically accepted that that's probably a Very good idea. Good idea. <laughs> yeah, especially young people. You know. Yeah, well, exactly. It's worth remembering that this wasn't this wasn't always the case. Very recently, the attitudes to the EU were very different. So, in 2015 and 2016, it was actually quite a widespread view that people didn't like the EU because of the way they were treating countries like Greece and Spain, and that was actually in the news. That which is the the main reason that most people I know who voted to leave voted yeah. to leave. 
It's a definite constituent, but it didn't even surface in the conversation around the referendum. I think that's because it wasn't a, a grassroots Brexit movement. It was a it was a it was managed by a very particular segment of the Tory party as a as a political calculation. And by media moguls like Yeah, that. very much. You know. If you if you subtract the Daily Mail, the Sun, the Sunday Times, the Telegraph from the equation, we don't leave. Mm. Yeah, yeah, don't you know. Know. If you go back to 2015 and those papers all fold somehow, we, we would remain and we would still be in the mm. European Union. I think I Absolutely. think that's where this the whole Corbyn wasn't enthusiastic enough about Remain thing comes from. Is that he, mm. he obviously wasn't very enthusiastic about Remain. He doesn't like the EU. But no. the he couldn't support he could support neither Remain nor Brexit. Because they weren't neither Remain nor Brexit were the whole of their own side of the conversation, if you see what I mean. No, yeah, exactly. You were being offered a Tory Remain or yeah. a Tory Brexit. You can either stay part of the EU framed as the capitalist club that Michael Foote wanted mm. to leave. Or you can leave the EU on the terms of people like Nigel Farage, Boris Johnson, and Jacob mm. Rees-Mogg, which are not terms on which Corbyn wanted to leave. And also, no, Jeremy Corbyn wasn't enthusiastic about the EU because he's a Eurosceptic. Mm. But he did actually campaign relatively strongly. It's yeah, just yeah. Um, very rarely did the papers or the broadcast news actually. Pick yeah, it's a very good point. I'm accepting the premise of the com- of the argument there, but it's actually not even true. He campaigned just as much as anyone well, pre- else did. <laughs> yeah, the premise that he wasn't enthusiastic is true because no, he wasn't enthusiastic, but he was campaigning pragmatically because he knew that a Tory Brexit would be worse than remaining in yes. the EU. And the fact that there were people doing that who were saying. The EU's not very good, but we should vote Remain for these reasons. Mm. Made me feel more comfortable voting Remain, for one. And I wouldn't be surprised if there were quite a few other people who were more more uncomplicatedly able to put the X next to Remain because they could see people Absolutely. who had a history of not liking the EU not supporting this Brexit. Yeah. I mean, I if I voted in 2016, I probably would have voted mm. to leave. You know, it... 2016? No, we did vote in 2016. Mm. My apologies. If I'd have voted... <laughs> I'm tired. If I'd have voted sort of two years earlier, if I'd have voted in 2014, yeah, I'd have yeah. voted to leave. Um, the, only, the, the reason that I voted to remain wasn't because I love the EU so much that I have an, a, an EU mug mm-hmm. on my desk, as per Stephen Bush of the New Statesman podcast, <laughs> which is cute. But, um, <laughs> but the reason... The reason I voted to remain was because I thought, well, if we go out of the EU now, it's going to be a massive economic disaster. Plus, if it's a withdrawal managed by the Tories, it's going to become a, a state in which workers' rights are attacked and which we become like mm. the Singapore of the North yeah, yeah. Atlantic, which isn't a good thing no matter how yeah, many no. times they try and tell you it is. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, and if- like, we don't want to be Singapore. Have you seen Singapore mm. recently? Everyone's miserable. Although, to be fair, they do ban chewing gum. So oh, okay. got that going for <laughs> this... The whole idea of using sort of um, not exactly nationalism, but trying to back the nation state as an independent object as a way to resist globalization doesn't really work. Is that... It's very Westphalian. Yes, yes, it very much is. <laughs> so any problem that we have with the EU is by definition a European problem, a Europe-wide problem, a problem that everyone in yeah. Europe would have with the EU. And so you would need a broad European response to it. The nation state is dead. Mm. You know, we have to come up with something to replace yeah. it. Trying to just brute, undialectically, ah, reverse <laughs> globalisation by just saying, oh, we'll just go back to having strong nation states. That's our policy. Doesn't make any sense. That's not, that doesn't mean anything. It's literally reactionary. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uber reactionary yeah. as well. Like, it's the kind of thing the Tory party, you know, a couple of generations ago would have looked on yeah. as mad. I mean, Winston Churchill accepted that, the European Union would come into being. I mean, he didn't think Britain should be part of it. He thought we should have our own one with the mm. Commonwealth. But but still, he accepted that nation-states were going to die and that we would have larger entities. Thatcher accepted it. 
she brought into it being the single European yeah. Act, which is the thing that the current Tory right hate the most. You know, the Tory party now is just, it's so d- divorced from any kind of, I think this is the problem, it's divorced from any kind of intellectual current. There is no intellectual framework within which the current Conservative Party operates. It just it just does things that are reactionary because that's what it does. It hasn't got, or very few people within it have got any kind of coherent actual ideology which they follow. Hmm. I think even people like Rhys Mock, who are very opinionated, I'm not sure if you could call his set of opinions an ideology because they seem quite, on the one hand, he's quite libertarian, but then he's opposed to abortion. Hmm. You know, what, like, what, is he, what is his actual ideological yeah, framework? Just, I'm not sure if he has one. Defend the interests of the existing elite. That's, yeah. that's the core of it. That's the only principle which actually explains all their positions. Yeah, which is just pure reactionary mm. nonsense and should be dismissed as such. Whereas at least in the 80s, they had like Hayek and Friedman that they could worship yeah. at the altar of. I mean, you know, at least there was some substance. There. Arguably, that was more of just a cloak for dismantling yeah. the post-war model. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But at least, they, you know, some of them believed it a mm. bit. Because they didn't, Thatcher did and- not, for example, reduce the size of the state. He expanded it, and the largest expansion in deficits in U.S. history happened under Reagan. Yeah, but I always, thought, I always peg Thatcher not as a Friedmanite, but as I, I always think that she had quite a. She's more, um, what's his name? Weber, Max Weber, no. the kind of it's that kind of Protestant. Yeah, I know what you mean. Ideal of a kind of of a kind she was of a Methodist, capitalistic work yeah. ethic. Yeah, I believe so. But but also, but with a, a, a quite a strong social um, element. Yeah, this, yeah. This is an unusual thing about Thatcher that. Uh, the way she governed as Prime Minister and as leader of the Tory party was kind of different to what you can glean from her personal sort of attitudes. She's much more of a conservative yes. personally, but she governed as a neoliberal. Yes. Absolutely. She yes. did have a, she carried the road to serfdom in her handbag. Yeah. <laughs> she slammed it down on the table in her first cabinet meeting as as head of the Tory party and said, This is wow. what we believe. <laughs> Which kind of proves your point that back then they at least had ideas. Yes, exactly. They had beliefs yes. as opposed to positions. <laughs> Whereas I think, the th- and, and Labour had the same under Blair. I mean, again, they had, um, what's his <coughs> name? Was it Anthony Giddens, the third way mm. bloke? But, I mean, really, it was just a, a thin quarrel. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, whereas Corbyn, you know, you can agree or disagree with him, but he has an ideological mm. framework from which he is able to, because I, I always think that if you, if you know what you believe, if you know what your first principles are, any p- question that someone puts to you, you should be able to answer. Yeah. Or even if the answer is, I'm not sure I'd have to think yeah. about that. But you, you should never be in a position whereby you cannot deduce your position from first mm. principles if you have a functioning ideal. Well, I suppose that's why why all this has happened in the wake of 2008, which is that the sort of the neoliberal, you know, Blair-Thatcher axis as our main way of conceptualising the world, that was our, our set of ideas, um, sort of fell apart after 2008. And the... That meant that the ideological justification for just protecting the interests of various elites fell away, and so you end up with things like the Tory Party, where they, the only the only sort of idea that they still have is we don't have any ideas, but we're still protecting elites, and it creates a vacuum that other things can rush into, which can either be good or bad. Yeah. And but at the moment, it would appear that the most successful ones, the most successful ones being Corbyn at the moment. That's that's the primary ideas-driven politics that we're getting in Britain. In this hmm. country, yeah, yeah. Whereas. Unfortunately, that isn't the case no. everywhere, which brings us very neatly on to. Hmm. All right. <laughs> you see that? You see that's, what we did? Oh, Segway. That's, that's 
quality broadcasting. <laughs> quality broadcasting. Although now we've done this bit, really. <laughs> never mind. Uh, it's quality <laughs> self-referential broadcasting now. Yeah, but this is this is postmodern neo-Marxism. <laughs> hashtag Jordan Peterson. Hashtag meaningless Hashtag term. dialectical materialism. Hashtag, hashtag idealism. Hashtag that's a contradiction. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag it's time for Donald J. Trump. Oh, no. <laughs> You knew it was going to happen. You couldn't get. We couldn't get through a whole podcast without mentioning him. <laughs> do you know what I'm always surprised by? What do you think the J in his name for uh, stands for? Oh, good question. Um, Jeremiah. No, John. It is John. John. Huh? I only said John because I didn't think it was right, but you said yeah, it was exactly. surprising. So <laughs> I always assumed it was James. Huh. Maybe because that's my middle name. I don't know. But I always thought Donald James Trump sounds right. Donald John Trump, I don't know why. Hmm. It just doesn't really, it doesn't suit him. John Trump doesn't scan. That could be it. Yeah. Do you know the, the S in Harry S. Truman's name doesn't stand for anything? I did know that. <laughs> he just added the S because he thought it sounded more presidential. Well, the thing is, they in America, they do that a lot, don't they? They, they refer do. to them by their middle initial. Hmm. Although they've stopped. It seems, so sometimes they do it by their three initials, but it seems to only be Democrats that they do that for. Yeah, that's FDR, true. JFK, LBJ. Yeah. They're all Democrats, and they don't do it for Republicans. People no. did start referring to Hillary Clinton as HRC before she didn't get elected. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't notice that, mm. but I, I do know her middle name, which is uh, unusual for a politician. Mm. I have no idea what Jeremy Corbyn's middle name is, or if he has one. Yeah. But I know that Hillary Rodham Clinton is Hillary Rodham Clinton. Presumably, David Cameron has about five. Well, I know that Alexander Boris de Pfeffel Johnson yeah. is Alexander Boris de Pfeffel Johnson. Boris but that's is mainly his name, because yeah. his middle name is de Pfeffel. Yeah. <laughs> which is great. <laughs> Isn't he part Russian? That's why he's called Boris, because it's quite a Russian name. I think so, yeah. yeah. Well, he's, he's one of these, because he's sort of semi-aristocratic, he's got relations from all over yeah, the place. I think Austrian as well is a bit hmm. in there. I did look it up once. Anyway, so Donald J. Trump and Russia. Speaking of Russia, that was another mm. segue. Yeah. Well done. Oh, links everywhere. Yeah. This is, it's like a spider's web. Mm. There's a wasp So this room. is... That's gone now. <laughs> Only a wasp this time, not a hornet. We can't afford another 10-minute hornet-based detour. <laughs> we we can cut the hornet bit. <laughs> we must press on to Moscow. Yeah. Yes, see? Yes, see? Brilliant, ESC. brilliant. Oh, um, I'm in awe. So this is, this is Russiagate. Mm. The ongoing saga of whether Donald Trump is merely a stooge of Russia, whether he is an active agent for Vladimir Putin, where whether they have compromising information or compromat on him. I love the Cold War terms coming back. <laughs> We're going to have Politburo's before we know it. It's going to be great. If Corbyn gets in power... Absolutely, oh, yeah. absolutely. I would be very disappointed if we didn't. Anyway, basically, this is, is Donald Trump working for the Russians? And if so, what do? Hmm. So, David, is Donald Trump working for the Russians? Well, I seriously doubt that he was actually colluding with the Russians to corrupt the process of election Remember, in America. Collusion's not illegal, people. No. Going to Sean Hannity. <laughs> that's absolutely fine. Apparently that's... To be fair, to a great extent, it's not illegal in America. You're allowed to have foreign donations, limitless corporate donations. Yeah. You're basically allowed to buy elections in America anyway. So, you know. Actually, slight detour. But this is partly what annoys me so much about Russiagate, is that people are really... It's become a massive story that, oh, maybe the Russians have affected the election. But there's been no talk over the last 30 years about the complete control of American elections by corporate America. Or the fact that America... <laughs> does its best to influence elections everywhere else, yeah. not, including Russia in the 90s. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> influence is a soft term when it comes to America. Mm. It'll invade your country if you go it the wrong way. Well, only if you're Latin American. That's true. Or um, East Asian. They don't tend to invade European countries. No. 
they just throw money at it like they did in Italy mm. in the 50s. They did it to Iran as well. They didn't really invade Iran, though, did they? That, that's true. Just, they, they, they supported sort of, a coup. Yeah, yeah, precipitated a coup. Yeah. Anyway, um, but uh, he he's unlikely to have been deliberately trying to collude with the Russian government to affect the US system. But given... There's a hornet now. <laughs> oh, dear. Go away! <laughs> God's sake. There it goes. There we are. There must be a nest here somewhere. <laughs> I'm going to start crying. <sighs> right. Where was I? Russia. Yes, he's... Okay, given his business history, which is not entirely above board, I hope I'm not libeling him there. It's true, so it doesn't matter. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, it's not libel if it's true. Yeah, it's not libel if it's true. That's, that's also, how it works. Unfortunately, in British courts, you have to prove... Uh, if he sues you in an American court, then the presumption is that what you said was true unless he can prove otherwise. Uh, so, oh well, I will just add probably or illegibly, illegibly, allegedly, not, <laughs> not illegibly, illegibly. Well, if Donald Trump has anything to do with it, it will be bloody illegible, won't it? Yes, right. Um, and the fact that he has links to Russian businessmen who maybe, maybe not have allegedly link, allegedly have links to not very legal things happening in Russia. Allegedly, yeah. um, it's. I think I, I wouldn't be surprised. Put it that way. That's putting it mildly as well. If he has been involved in something very illegal in Russia, money laundering, allegedly, and it would be unlikely if that were true, allegedly true, allegedly, it would be. It would be. I'm having to hedge my bets here, and it's really weakening my point. But allegedly, yeah, um, it would be very likely if that were true that the Russian government would have evidence of that, given the the close relationship between the oligarchs and the Putin regime. Uh, excuse me, the alleged close relationship. No, no, there are. There, yeah, there, there definitely are. Close um, yeah. So, if it's if it's true, which it definitely is, allegedly, <laughs> um, then... I don't think you have allegedly, definitely. Yeah. I'm not sure that works. I think that's one of the oxymorons they hear about. Yes. Um, then Putin would have evidence of it, and that would provide quite a lot of leverage to be able to influence the Trump administration. And even if they're not using it as leverage... It's still illegal, and he should be impeached for it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, so basically, right. So, there's a fortunately in between our last attempt to record this podcast and this attempt to record this podcast, five thirty eight did a podcast called Four Theories About the Trump Russia Connection. Hmm. So, I will now lay out their four basic theories. Number one, it's a load of rubbish. The only reason that it's even a thing is because Trump likes Putin a bit. Hmm. No collusion. Nothing. It's all fine. That's the that's position number one. To be fair, even even that's not not that good. The fact that Trump is trying to model himself after Putin is not a good thing. That is true. <laughs> position number two is that the Russians infiltrated the Trump campaign without Trump's knowledge, and also may have been doing other things to influence the American elections again without Trump's knowledge. Now, I think that is the absolute flaw because we know that the Russians were trying to influence the elections. That's in pretty unquestionable. Some that's been that's been proven. It would be that's amazing been, if they weren't. If, if yeah, they're not, very, they should try. I'd that. be disappointed. <laughs> yeah, if Vladimir Putin wasn't doing that. Like he's an ex KGB colonel. What the hell is he playing? Yeah. <laughs> so that's. I think that's the flaw. Right. That's the absolute flaw for anything. Any reasonable person. Hmm. The Russians were definitely meddling. But that, that's very normal. America medals. Everyone medals. Exactly. This is international espionage. This is how it works. The next position up is that Trump was being influenced in some way. Either members of his campaign team and entourage were involved with the, with the Russians but he wasn't aware of it or potentially he was aware there was something going on but 
chose to turn a blind eye to it because it was in his head. In his head. And position four is he's an active agent of Russian intelligence, either because they have compromise on him, which he knows about, or because he is an actual Russian asset, which some people... So those are the four basic positions that they laid out, and then they had a debate about it. Now, I think, as I say, I think position two is the floor. That is certainly true. I think position three, that people in the Ru- in the Trump campaign were engaged with um, with the Russians, and that Trump turned a blind eye, is almost certainly... At least, uh, I think that I think we can probably move the floor up to that position mm. because of the meeting between uh, Donald Trump Jr., Jared. What's his actual surname? I can't remember his surname. Kushner. Kushner. That's the chap. Jared Kushner um, and the Russian bloke, mm. right? <laughs> <laughs> so I think I think we can say that that is probably true. Yeah. Now, whether Trump, now the, the fourth position that Trump is a, is either through blackmail or active like engagement, a Russian agent. I think that has yet to be proven. Yeah. I think that's quite unlikely, really. Yeah. The fact that he's a spy, effectively. <laughs> yeah. Which people have suggested. The, the, fact, the fact that people have suggested that the President of the United States is a Russian spy, I mean, it's, it, that in and of itself is quite remarkable, really. It's quite bad. Yeah. Yes. But there's, there's another angle to this, which is that the, the right wing of the Democratic Party loves this story. Oh, absolutely. Because <laughs> it gives them a way to oppose Trump without actually opposing the core of his economic policy or his position or the way he's trying to reorganise the American state. Because they actually agree, they agree with, with it. With economics, <laughs> yeah. And they're not too fussed about the whole state. Hmm. But they, they can't be seen as the Democrats opposing a Republican president to not to be, to be going along with him. So they need some angle to be able to sound really sort of fired up and against him because he's obviously outrageous. And to try and get elected off the back of his unpopularity. But they need to not go against the corporate interests that are effectively in control of the Democratic Party, because they're exactly the same corporate interests that are in control of both political parties in America. Capitalism erodes democracy. Case closed. <laughs> Have you even read Bakunin? Yep. <laughs> Don't understand. The, the other thing, I think, is that... Um, so there's there's an article which I shall link in the show notes by a guy called Benjamin Studebaker, who is an American PhD student studying at Cambridge, and I mean the proper one. Um... <laughs> The, no, the English American one, right? Rubbish. Yeah, not the um, not the New England one. Yeah, indeed. Um, who basically argues that American presidents, all of the recent American presidents, basically since the end of the Cold War, have done their best to try and make friends with Russia. So you had Clinton and Yeltsin in the 90s, and then Bush and Putin had a little bit of a bromance going on for a little bit. And then Obama was trying to pivot. The kid talked about the pivot to the East, the pivot to Asia, whatever you want mm. to call it. So he was trying to focus more on China and kind of get the Russians on side. And there was... There was the period when Putin wasn't president as well, when he was prime minister and Medvedev was president. Yes. Is it Medvedev? I'm getting the name right. Or is that the... That is correct, that, yes. Mendeleev's the one I'm getting confused with, the, the chemi- chemist one. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, and he was apparently more amenable to US interests. So they tried to use the period when Putin was out of office to yeah. close, uh, tighten relations with Russia. And... Although, unfortunately, he was still basically running the show. Oh, so yeah. That didn't really go anywhere. But the, basically, the, the, the argument in this article runs that... Um, Putin defines himself basically in opposition to Yeltsin because Yeltsin was seen as so close to Clinton and because he was seen as a kind of an attache of the corporate interests, which in the aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union ripped Russia apart and asset stripped it. Good old Boyo. Yeah, basically destroying the living standards of the Russian people to the point that the living standards didn't actually recover mm. to pre-1990 levels until about 2008, just in time for the Great Recession. Yes. Soviet Union collapses and you think, well, does that mean we're going to going to fix all the things that were wrong with the Soviet Union. No, we're just going to we're going to keep all the things that are wrong 
but we're also just going to introduce all the things that are worst about capitalism as well. Hooray! Yeah. <laughs> so basically, Russia in the mid to late 90s became a hellscape. Essentially became temporarily a developing country, which really, as one of the main superpowers of most of the 20th century, was a real blow to not just Russian living standards, but to the Russian national consciousness. And Russia has quite a strong sense of national identity. So they basically hated Yeltsin and saw, and Putin therefore defined himself very strongly against Yeltsin. Hmm. And so the argument is basically Putin cannot be seen to play along with the Americans because his entire political persona is defined as against the guy who played along with the Americans. Plus the fact that Putin has geopolitical interests which are constantly frustrated by the Americans in Syria and in uh, Georgia and places. Hmm. So it's a, uh, a country which was in an economically vulnerable situation that was then subject to an attempted takeover of its political and economic system by America in conjunction with global corporate interests that then led to a right-wing nationalist backlash that is now causing most of the foreign policy problems that we have today. Where have I heard that story before? No idea. Everywhere! <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so the argument is therefore that Trump trying to make nice with Russia isn't necessarily too out of character for an American president. The way he's doing it is obviously odd, but the actual process isn't necessarily completely aberrant because the greatest fear of America geopolitically is that Russia aligns itself with China. You know, the greatest success of the Americans during the Cold War was the Sino-Soviet split. Mm. If Russia and China get back together, you know, mm. that creates a very powerful bloc opposing American global geopolitical interests. <laughs> Sorry to go back to Alexei Sale, but um, his parents were communists as well. And That's he right. was a... a teenager when so he was raised as a communist and i think it was as a teenager but when he was young still living at home the sino-soviet split happened and his parents and him supported opposite sides in it his parents went on the stalinist side and he went on the maoist side so there was he was having arguments with his parents about oi alexi don't call your mother a reactionary oh she is dad you know <laughs> revisionist yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, alexi scale revisionist scum yep <laughs> he was the maoist yeah yeah, yeah, but yes. So that's an argument which I think is could 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 be valid. I mean, it it, it supports the idea that the Democrats really need to stop harping on about Russia and pick something else mm. to go on about. It's um, not like they don't have there aren't other social problems in America that are crying out for someone to rail against. Well, exactly. And it doesn't I resonate mean, with people. People don't. If people say I'm going to give you health care, people are like hooray. If people go, I think that Trump knew more about a particular meeting that happened in Trump Tower a few years ago than he previously said that he did. People go, oh, okay. Yeah. It's important. I'm not saying it's not important. But it's it's not the core of a winning message if you're trying to win from a left-wing platform. The thing is, for the, for the democratic kind of traditional democratic elite, what it is is it's a possible route to impeachment. Hmm. It might be a way to get Trump out of the way without having to upset the apple cart of the two-party political system too much. Yeah. Yes, because the, the other... Main. Th it's also it's an attempt to to define the the sort of binary axis of American politics as Trump versus the sort of sane moderates. Yeah, and erase the third element, which is the you know the the the, the grassroots Bernie Sanders Democratic Socialist sort of quite astonishing phenomenon which has occurred in America in the last few years. No one would have expected this to happen. That absolutely that you know the Midwest becomes a center of global socialism. That's not to be expected, but it, suddenly it has. <laughs> <laughs> it, it sounds ridiculous when you say it like that, yeah. doesn't it? But there we go. There's another article, also by Benjamin Studebaker, um, 
basically saying the exact thing that the Midwest is the place where the Democrats or the Democratic left will pick up seats, mm. and that Ocasio Cortez's win in New York is great and to be applauded, but it isn't where the majority of gains for the DSA are going to come. And that they should yeah. really focus on places out in the West and the Midwest where a lot of Democrats don't even run. Mm. There are Democratic primary nominations open for the taking because a lot of the time the Republicans run unopposed. Yeah, well, I think and this if- is that the primaries are going to be the difficult bit for democratic socialists in in the democratic party because they can win they have a very very popular message that appeals to both democratic voters and republican voters so in a general election they i reckon can tend to do quite well especially in places where democrats haven't traditionally done very well um but in primaries they can so an example would be the 2016 general election that bernie sanders would probably have beaten pretty much any republican if he'd been against them but he couldn't beat hillary clinton I think that's probably true of a lot of congressional Democrats as well. Certainly in places like New York, I think it will be true. Yeah, because the Democratic Party machine has a lot of power inside the Democratic Party. And it is very much on the side of the establishment candidates. And frankly, they can just outspend you. Yeah, very much so. You know, if you're backed by the kind of Pelosi, Crowley, Clinton kind of faction, you you have so much money that you can play with. Whereas if you're a, a DSA member or someone like Cortez, the only reason she won really was because she had a lot of very, very committed activists on the ground and but i think even more importantly than that she made a brilliant uh, youtube video promoting her campaign which went viral and mm. allowed her to be in the social media war which you the thing is with the social media war is you can win that for not that much money yeah yeah but you cannot win the the conventional political campaign war without heaps and heaps of money mm. and the democratic right is always going to have more of that than the democratic left yeah. and it's worth remembering that it's that and it's also that her platform is just inherently more appealing oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. obviously but yeah, so I, I would agree that there are other people who've done what Ocasio-Cortez have done, won Democratic primaries for the House, uh, not so many for the Senate, but uh, anyway, but they haven't done it in districts that traditionally go Democratic, and so they haven't got, they're not assumed necessarily to therefore be almost certainly be a congressperson at the end of the day. Um, but I wouldn't, I, I think people will be surprised how many of them are. there are. You will get socialists coming up in Nebraska and Oklahoma and all over the place. Yeah, and frankly, if... The nomination is open for the taking. If otherwise, the uh, the, the the Republican will win by default. What what have you got to lose? Mm, very much so. I mean, you know, especially if D- your campaign doesn't cost anything. Yeah, exactly. The DSA. I'm talking about the DSA as if it's a coherent entity. I'm not convinced it is, but no. And know. there's a few of these groups. There's the DSA. There's the Progressive Caucus. There's Justice Democrats. There's there's a few yeah, groups of, that are all trying to do sort of the same thing. Yeah. But you know, Gasco Cortez is in more than one of those. Okay, shall we move on then to? Israel. Hooray, less contentious territory, yes. Absolutely. So we're going to tone it down a little bit. We're going to tone it down a bit and we're going to talk about the Israeli-Palestine conflict. Specifically, (laughs) specifically we're going to talk about a new law that the Knesset, I never know whether to pronounce the K, but I'm going to pronounce it until I'm told otherwise. The Israeli parliament. Yeah, the Israeli Israeli parliament um, has passed passed a law which I believe is now being legally challenged so watch this space but um, at the moment that's new since we first recorded this yes it is but it has passed a law which defines the state of Israel officially as a Jewish state uh, which downgrades Arabic from its previous status as a co-official language to merely a language with a special status Hmm. which affirms the right of the the Jewish nation to exist as, as the state of Israel and sidelines the the course of Palestinians uh, and other obviously um, Arabs, and also essentially spreads the the current legal situation which exists in the the West Bank and the occupied territories um, to the rest of Israel. So basically, now 
the, the, the specific language about uh, which would would have allowed it, uh, communities of Jewish Israelis to exclude non-Jews from their communities from their borders was watered down in the final version but it still represents a massive massive step backwards for Palestinian legal equality within mm. the official borders of the state of Israel obviously they have never had legal equality within the occupied territories the West Bank in particular obviously Gaza is a kind of more of a ward prison than mm. an occupied territory but still but now essentially the situation which pertains in the West Bank has been extended to what is officially the state of Israel yes it's 20% of Israeli citizens are Arabs and those people are as Israeli as if if it wants to be called a, a liberal democratic state, then Arabic Israelis are as Israeli as anyone else, no matter what their religion or ethnic background is. And it is but, worth pointing out that there are quite a lot of Arab Christians as well as Yeah, yeah, very much Muslim so. Not saying, they're not all Muslims yeah. either. And there are Arab Jews as well. Uh, yes, there are, yeah. Um, because there there had been in, in the pre Israeli Palestine, there had been Jews there, you know, for thousands of years. They, they were not all kicked out by the Romans. They did. They did try. They did try, but, <laughs> um, but they didn't have industrial methods of genocide back then. So it was a bit of it was an ineptly yeah. executed genocide. Mm. Yes. So this is literally racist. Now, no one yeah. can say that it's. Oh, is it racist? No. This is legal. Legally saying people are different, have a different status of citizen if they are not of the race that this state is the state of. It officially affirms that Israel is an ethnostate. Mm. It's always essentially been an ethnostate colonial project, but now it is legally an ethnostate colonial project. Yeah. Which is bad. This yes, is, it is bad. This has echoes of, you know, Jim Crow America and and apartheid South Africa. Yes. It also goes against the original Declaration of Israeli Independence, yes. which reads, uh, Israel is founded to ensure complete equality of social and political rights to all its inhabitants, irrespective of religion, race, or gender. Mm. But unfortunately... The Declaration of Independence, unlike in, say, America, has no legal status. So those words, they sound very nice, but they just mean nothing. And as I say, it, I believe the law is currently being challenged in court. So we await to see what happens there. Hopefully, of course, it is struck down. Hmm. But if it isn't, then, as I believe someone in the New Statesman said, and I will link the article, um, Israel has essentially left, I mean, finally, officially left the club of liberal democracies has been has moved into here we go definitely takes us out of the western liberal democratic camp and puts us in the xenophobic supranationalist east european camp it's terrible no question it's a disgrace that's israeli political scientist galia golan of the interdisciplinary center in herzliya near tel aviv mm. so a lot of israeli jews are also very very not happy about this mm. there have been huge protests which have attracted all kinds of people to them um but because netanyahu's coalition in the knesset just about holds the majority they're able to ram this through. Hmm. This is the conflation of the state of Israel and being a Jewish person has always been a, a a cornerstone of what you might call anti-Semitic ideology. The way anti-Semites, the, the structure of the notion of anti-Semitism always includes this idea that if you're Jewish, you're therefore not wholly a part of whatever country you're in because you have this loyalty to this third thing, Israel. It's a similar argument that was used to against Catholics during the um, during the, the Reformation period in England hmm. and other Protestant states that because they were loyal to the Pope, they were a fifth column within the state. Yes, it needs to be rejected as much as possible. But this law actively endorses it, saying that Israelis that the the idea of being an Israeli is the same thing as being a Jew. And if you're an Israeli who's not a Jew, then you're not wholly Israeli. Which which suggests the corollary that if yes. you're a Jew, you, you are, are at least somehow, partly Israeli. 
associated with Israel, which obviously the right of return kind of already does. But in, at least in that case, it's a right you could choose not to take yeah. up. You can you can say, well, I don't I don't want to do that, and you have, that's your prerogative, it, which is like an entirely reasonable thing to do if you're Canadian but you're Jewish. There's no reason that anyone should tell you that you're not as Canadian as as anyone else of any other religion or ethnic background. Or conversely, that you're not as Jewish as an Israeli Jew. Yeah. Both Very much so. Equal, equally apparent. Yeah, this uh, this is a really weird thing that started to happen. That Israeli propaganda, insofar as it targets those Jews who don't go along with Israel, has started to take the the traditional forms of anti-Semitic propaganda. They start to use the same slurs, the same techniques. It's really weird that the Israeli nationalist propaganda is starting to take the form of anti-Semitism when it applies to people who are Jewish but aren't Israeli. And but there you, is there, there's an way. underlying logic to it in that both sides are trying to identify the state of israel and the jewish people as being and also the jewish religion which is in theory separate although there is Hmm. there aren't that many non-jews who are jewish if you know i mean but they're trying to say that these things are all one because it's it's imperative to the the ultra zionist colonial project of netanyahu and his liquid group and people like them it's imperative that they bring as many Jewish people from other countries as possible into Israel, because of course they have the demographic problem that the Palestinian population reproduces at a higher rate, and within a century, if nothing changes, the Jewish people will probably be a minority. Mm. Although, of course, it's only a demographic century. problem if you're a racist. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um. But that's that's why this. I think that's why this. Partly why this law has been brought in now is because this basically enshrines the fact that even if Jewish people become a minority within the borders of Israel they will still be legally superior, which is minority rule, hmm. which is apartheid. Yes, directly. Just straight up. <sighs> yeah, this, it's not just... So this weird thing of, of Israeli nationalism, what you might call Zionism, and anti-Semitism lining up with each other mm. is not limited to, to a dispute between different forms of Jewish people. It's also... So take America, for example. The, I find it difficult to take America. <laughs> <laughs> the sort of uh, the extremist white nationalist sort of fundamentalist Christian people in the Midwest and the South, yeah, who are inherently extremely anti-Semitic. It's part of the core of their ideology. They want to get the Jews out of America. They want to make it a white ethnostate. But these people are also some of the most pro-Israel inside American politics, and want to push for American support of Israel more than anything else. Modern Zionism originated not within the Jewish community, but within American puritanical evangelical Christians. Mm. Before the like the fundamentalist movement in a strict sense took off, because that really began with with the twentieth century. But they were they were the the, the forerunners of the modern hmm. fundament, Christian fundamentalists, and that's where Zionism originates because hmm. it's all to do with their kind of their ideology of the end of the world, the, the third temple, and all this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Which is very. If you ever fa- anyone ever fancies going into it, just brace yourself. Hmm. Really odd. Hmm. It's well, it's basically the same thing that ISIS believe, but like. Yes, with the, a couple of like dates and names changed. Now, of course, it's Israel has a right to exist as a state. It's there. There are people. They're living. Yeah. That's all. That, that's good. But you, not you, as an you're saying that people ideology. living is good, yeah. David. <laughs> living their lives. I don't know. The way that they sounds pretty wishy-washy, liberal, Fine. lefty to me. Yeah. <laughs> but not with ultra-nationalist ideology, and not in a way that endorses the premises of the racism against people of the ethnic group that you're trying to build the ethnostate of. I think I, I think I just about followed that. What really, really upsets me, I think, almost as much as 
as you're upset for the Palestinians who are having their legal equality taken away and have already lost so much. I think what almost upsets me almost as much as that is the fact that Netanyahu is willing through... And it's not just Netanyahu, but I'll use them as a shorthand. Netanyahu is willing, through the passage of this law, to consign many, many Jewish people in European countries in America to greater levels of anti-Semitism. Mm. Because every time Israel does something like this, every time they invade Gaza, every time they pass a law restricting Palestinian freedom, there is always an anti-Semitic backlash. Mm. And so the Jewish people in Britain suffer because of the ultra-nationalist, ultra-Zionist policies of a government they most likely don't support yeah. and want nothing to do with. Because those people are not to blame. And and if there's anti-Semitic attacks and, and, and statements and what have you, the people who make them are to blame. Of course. Directly. Um, but Netanyahu has to shoulder some of the blame. Yeah, yeah. Because he is causing them to happen. Because he fundamentally doesn't actually, I don't think, particularly care about the Jewish people. He, what he cares about is his own power within Israel. Mm. Yeah, not even the Israeli people either. Oh, because no. the, the, the long-term security of the state of Israel is not being served by aggressive and inflammatory foreign policy on the part of the, the Netanyahu government. The long-term security of the Israeli people would be served by a stable, peaceful and independent Palestine more than anything else. But they... Well, okay, this gets into a bit more detail here, but I would say that the actions of the Netanyahu government are making that less likely. Well, this new law makes it impossible. Yeah. Because any Palestinian state in order to be viable really has to include at least part of Jerusalem. And this new law also has, as another one of its provisions, that Jerusalem, entire and undivided, is permanently included as the Israeli capital. Right. And this is this is a form of Israeli law which has the status of constitutional law. Yeah. It's called a basic law, but basic, it's that's a German like loan. Yeah. But but it it's um this has the status of the Israeli constitution essentially. Basic in the sense that it forms the base. Yes. Yeah. And so as long as this law is on the books, there can never be an independent Palestine with a capital in East Jerusalem. Yes. Which so is the minimum demand that most Palestinian nationalists have. So it's tantamount to stating there can never be a two-state solution. Yeah. But there will also not except a one-state solution with equal rights for in- including the whole of the West Bank, Gaza and the, the current state of Israel in a single Israeli state with full political rights for everyone living in it. Because that would run completely counter to their demographic problem again. Because you would be including huge numbers of, of people who are of the quote-unquote wrong ethnicity in your state. So they will explicitly, they will now not accept either a one-state solution or a two-state solution. So what do they want? <laughs> No, they want permanent military occupation of the of the Palestinians who are outside of Israel and apartheid within Israel. That's the policy of the... Really what they want is every Arab removed from Eretz Israel. Yes, that's the policy of the Israeli government at this point. That's what they would really ideally want. They want Israel, Palestine, even Jordan in, or parts of Jordan in some extreme cases completely swept clear of Arabs and under Jewish rule. There is, that's at ideally this point, there is no other way to interpret the policies of this particular government. Ah. It's a bit depressing, really. It is quite depressing. Because the thing is, it's it's not like we can do much about it. Because mm. as long as they continue to be supported by America, and even Barack Obama, who is probably the most Israeli sceptic, if you like, if the recent American presidents were still pretty pro-Israel. Mm. Overwhelmingly. And as long as America remains the backer of Israel, there's nothing Europe can do. There's certainly nothing Britain can do alone, even if it wanted to. Mm. Listen, this, is, this is the thing. None of this means that I don't think Israel should exist. It's fine. Fundamentally, there's nothing particularly wrong with the people who are already living there, staying living there, and having political independence and their own democratic state. That's fine. It's just that these policies do not are not conducive to a solution on any of these points. And also, it's not a matter of being pro-Israeli, really. 
because the interests of the Israeli people are not served by this. The interests of the Israeli people are pretty much the same as the interests of any other people. This is internationalist socialism. Ah, the interests of the Palestinian people and the interests of the Israeli people are pretty much the same in this. They both want the Absolutely. same outcome. It's the government. Of course, that's they not, want peace. Yeah, yeah. It's the it's the elites trying to maintain their own power. The government. The yeah. Yeah. And so, a small section of extreme ideological radicals on both sides yeah. propping the governments up. Yes. I mean, uh, you know, and, and it should go without saying, but these days it probably has to be said. The same problem exists on the Palestinian right. Yes. And I'm happy to call them the right. You know, people... Oh, yeah. The, the Islamist is political right, parties, no such as Hamas, Islamic Jihad, they have the same problem that in their constitutional founding documents basically say that Israel has no right to exist. There is no other the sea. way to interpret their ideological views and their actions other than to say that they're far right. And arguably Hamas more so than Likud. Yes. And it's certainly with their internal policy... Likud is more willing to tolerate a certain amount of feminism and LGBT rights and what happened yeah, that's in Israel. True. That's true. And both are obviously hugely militaristic. Hmm. And uh, it's also worth mentioning that the reason why Hamas is so dominant in Palestine, politically speaking, is to an extent a result of American machinations yeah. trying to promote them as the primary voice of Palestine because it's less likely to engender peace which is the one thing that nobody at the top wants and that everyone in the population wants. Although, as This is a specific example, but as recently as, I think, 2014? I'm going off the top of my head here, so I might get some of the detail wrong. But there was a unity government formed between Gaza and the West Bank. Yes. With Al-Fatah in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza. But the terms of it was that Hamas gave up all influence over that government and all ministerial positions in it just so that there could be a unity government, which is obviously an enormous threat to the to the continued control of, of the people who thrive off of the division narrative. Mm. And so immediately you spark an, a crackdown on the West Bank and, and, and in Gaza and a military invasion and an attempt to break up that. Yeah. Ah, ah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. I've gone off on one. That's a tangent, but... It's, it's a relevant tangent. It is quite a relevant tangent. But yes, uh, there, there is... The Palestinian political authorities also have enormous problems, support far-right policies, are incredibly anti-Semitic. Yeah. yeah. And so the people of Israel have a right to try and feel... to They have a right to feel scared about that and threatened by it and want to defend themselves against it. No, and, and no one should suggest that the Israeli people and the Israeli state doesn't have a right to defend itself. Mm. What it doesn't have a right to do is respond to every minor act of aggression with overwhelming force, causing the problem to spiral worse and worse. Mm. And in the meantime, oppress the innocent citizens within its own borders again driving more people into the arms of people like Hamas and Islamic Jihad yep. because then they have a martyrdom narrative which is what Islamists thrive on yes the aspect of this that's always missed is the is, is what happens in the region when quote unquote nothing happens when there's not an attack there's not an invasion there's not a crackdown there's not an anything on quote unquote normal days what happens is racist oppression by a very powerful state over a group of people who don't have their own state which you would think you would think that the government of Israel might look upon with a bit of sympathy. Yes. It's not a... It's not just... It's often conceptualised, especially in the West and in the media, as two sides which keep attacking each other and we're trying to work out whose fault it is. But it's, it's not. All of that is happening... All of that is the, the surface level bit that when it flares up and gets into the news, the backdrop that that's happening against, which must be included in order to understand the situation, is the day-to-day -day happenings when there's not some kind of flare-up of violence. <laughs> So, having talked about Israel-Palestine for the last 20 minutes, we're now going to move on to something nice and light, which is the issue of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. 
Because <laughs> oh no, because this bloody saga There's so much wrong is with the still world. going on. Yes, the first thing to say is that there are anti-Semites mm. in Labour. I'd wonder, but it is it is good that it's getting some coverage in 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 a way because yes. It's good that someone is trying to deal yes, with it. Yes, absolutely. There are anti-Semites in the Labour Party. Yeah. We don't want them in the Labour Party. We would like no. them to leave the Labour Party. If you're an anti-Semite in the Labour Party, go, yes, away. go away. If you're listening to this and you're an anti-Semite who is a member of the Labour Party, which I'm guessing is unlikely, but if you are, yeah. please leave. <laughs> and if you don't leave, I would prefer it if you were thrown yes. out. However, oh my God, will they shut up. Right, so basically, <laughs> this is the ongoing attempt by certain right-wing Labour MPs to smear Jeremy Corbyn as an anti-Semite, a racist, a terrorist sympathiser. They've kind of dropped that one, but it's the same group of people. Egged on by the Tories, of course, because it helps them, and supported by large sections of the media, including, I'm sorry to say, a little bit of the New Statesman, which makes me sad. Actually, it just pops into my head is that it reminds me a bit of what happened in 2016 when they tried to oust him over the Europe mm. thing. It's very similar. Brexit's really annoying, <laughs> and it's happening, but it's annoying. Um, and that's that's a reasonable cause to get behind, saying, oh no, the Tories are taking control of Brexit, what have you. But it's then spun into an anti-Corbyn yeah. thing. Similarly, there are anti-Semites in the Labour Party. This is a bad thing. Mm. This needs dealing with. But it's then made into, oh, the leadership is anti-Semitic, which is just not true. Oh, and the Trump-Russia thing, actually, come mm. to think of it. That is a serious problem. If it's true, it needs to be, you know, Trump needs to be prosecuted for it. But the way that the establishment wing of the Democrats are using yeah. it is very cynical. Absolutely. So Margaret Hodge, who is a Labour backbencher, called Jeremy Corbyn an anti-Semite in the House. So she is protected by parliamentary privilege. This means that she can say what she likes, pretty much, and she can't be sued for libel, or rather slander, because it was speech. If she'd said that outside the House of Commons, that would have been grounds for a slander case. She's already having disciplinary procedures brought against her within the Labour Party, because, of course, calling the leader of your party an anti-Semite in public is, you know, grounds for disciplinary procedures. Mm. Especially when he clearly is Absolutely. Now, the other day, this has happened, um, he did give an apology for, for giving a talk at an event on Holocaust Memorial Day in 2010, at which someone, I believe, compared Zionism to Nazism. Um, he's he's apologised for this. He said, in the cause of Palestinian liberation, I've given speeches at events alongside people with whom I profoundly disagree, or worse than that effect. Now, comparing Zionism to Nazism is a bit lazy. The event was called, I think, Never Again to Anyone, or something, again, something along those lines. So basically it was saying, you know, we're opposed to the Holocaust, we also are opposed to other forms of genocide and ethnic cleansing and oppression. Mm. Comparing Zionist project to the Nazi project is lazy because they're two very distinct things. People do this a lot comparing things to Nazism. But Nazism was a very, very particular thing. Yeah, I... but it's because it's it's the main, it's the most unambiguously evil ideology that most people can yeah. name. You know, it's it's so it's been made into such a, a kind of a bugbear, a kind of archetypal evil for the mm. Western world. Like you know, in the Lion King, like Scar's hyenas do like enact the Nuremberg Rallies in a film made for children. You know, that's how it's mm. how much it's seeped into the, the the consciousness of the Anglo-American West in particular. Yes. Hitler is, as a name, is reaching the status of, you know, Satan. Yeah. Hitler, Satan, Darth Vader. It just means evil man. Yes. But that's not entirely accurate. People do it with communism as well. They say that they compare the crimes of the Soviet Union to the crimes of Nazism. Mm. But they're really, they were very different. I'm not saying which ones were better. But <laughs> which ones were better they crimes? Weren't, they weren't the same well... thing. They played out very differently. They had different motivations, yes. different dynamics. It's, they're just different situations. Absolutely. Just because they're both bad doesn't mean they're the same thing. A better comparison for current Israeli policy would, as we've already mentioned, be white minority rule in apartheid South Africa or in, for example, yeah. Rhodesia before it became Zimbabwe. That would be a better comparison. Mm. Or, as you said, Jim Crow America. 
comparing it to the Nazis is clearly a bad comparison because they haven't begun a systematic extermination of the Palestinian Arab people. No, and they haven't invaded the rest of the Middle East in order to round up any Arabs that are in other Arabic countries and then, you know, shipping them off to try and exterminate the entire global Arab population. It's not the same thing. Although it is probably worth pointing out that they did invade the Sinai Peninsula and they do still currently occupy territory in Syria. But, yeah, these are compared to the crimes of the Nazis. Relatively minor. Yeah. Not not, not the same thing. (laughs) Yes. Aside from the fact that it's... Because, okay, the problem with this is not so much that it's slandering Zionism, although it is to an extent. Mm. Um, It's... The worst thing about it is that it's minimising the yes. Holocaust by saying that it's, oh, the Holocaust is just one among all of the many bad things that have happened throughout history. It's, no, it was, the Holocaust was a, a thing unto yeah. itself. It's a, worse than anything else that has ever happened. The Holocaust is... It's, it's bad. That's my yeah, position. Agreed. That was relatively uncontroversial. Yep. <laughs> the mechanised slaughter of an entire, well, several entire populations within a vast area to, hmm. to, to that extent is clearly unprecedented in history. The, the Armenian genocide, hmm. which is perpetrated by the Turks, no matter what they say, um, is kind of the forerunner for it, and a lot of the tactics were literally transmitted from the Ottoman troops perpetrating the Armenian genocide to the German troops who would then go on to carry out the Holocaust. But in terms of scale, hmm. certainly nothing possibly compares. So it's a lazy comparison, hmm. and I wish people would stop. And that's why I think it's right that Ken Livingston basically got suspended from the Labour Party, and I think he's now been yeah, kicked yeah. out, because it was a lazy comparison, and his response to it was just what's the word i can't think of the word right now but rubbish anyway <laughs> however israel to nazi germany is rubbish yeah, it's lazy and <laughs> reductionist and marks you out as not a particularly intelligent person however i don't think it's necessarily indicative that you're anti-semitic and certainly it doesn't mean that if you if you once were at an event where someone else expressed something similar to that and you didn't that doesn't make you an no, precisely what we must now come on to is the, the core of the current crisis over anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is over the NEC's refusal to adopt in full the IHRA, which is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, definition of anti-Semitism. Specifically, they have excluded two examples. They've, the, the main definition they have accepted, and they've included most of the examples, but they have refused to include two specific examples. These are Denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination, e.g. by claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavour, and applying double standards by requiring of it, brackets, the state of Israel, a behaviour not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation. Now, these are very, very specific examples. And the problem with including them is that the first one, denying the Jewish people the right to self-determination, if that stopped there, I'd be happy to have it. But then... All people have the right to self-determination, so... But then the example, by claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavour. Well, technically the existence of a state of Israel is not necessarily a racist endeavour. That's true. Hmm. But the current state of Israel has just passed a law declaring itself to be an ethno-state. Yeah, just by definition. (laughs) So, we cannot have... Not a political point, that's just a logical reality. That's a fact. So, if this definition was accepted, then any member of the Labour Party who pointed that fact out could be in danger of being expelled from the party. Now... We are both members of the Labour Party, so that would mean hmm. we'd be out. That would upset me somewhat. So, frankly, I'm glad that's been left yeah. outside. So the question is, because it depends how the rule was enforced. And how it's interpreted. Because strictly, yes, strictly that, speaking... Well, that wouldn't necessarily be... for What we've said doesn't fall under that rule if it's enforced strictly. Hmm. But if it is enforced a little bit loosely, and the definition is massaged slightly from that position, then you could interpret it yeah. that way. And that's what people are worried about and need to avoid. And that's why that particular language has been left out of the Labour Party's definition. Now, 
That doesn't mean that people who are anti-Semitic will not be caught. The current definition that's been accepted is still robust. And if people go around, just because this language has been left out, doesn't mean that people go around saying, oh, I hate all Jews because Israel's racist. That doesn't mean they won't be kicked out because they've said they hate all Jews. That's the anti-Semitic bit. The because Israel's racist bit isn't relevant at that point. Now, yes, some people do use attacks on Israel as dog whistles. That is a tactic which is used by some people on the right. I accept that. And obviously, when I say on the right, I mean in terms of racist. You can have people who are in the Labour Party but still right-wing in that sense. But that the problem with putting language in that is this specific in your official definition is that once the language is in there, it can be misused. So leaving out these two specific examples, I think, is a reasonable position. Particularly the second one as well, it's worth pointing out, applying double standards by requiring it of a behaviour not expected or demanded of any other democratic nation. Well, of course, strictly speaking, that is, of course, wrong. You shouldn't expect one nation to be held to a higher standard than another. And it would be indicative of a racist attitude to if you specifically states, if you, if you require Israel. things of it that you don't require of states that are in a similar political position and t- carrying out similar similar actions but have a different ethnic Absolutely. background. Absolutely. That would be racist. Absolutely. Yeah. But again, that interpreted a little more loosely, then this essentially could permit people saying that Israel isn't a democratic state or isn't a liberal democracy. Like that Israeli academic I quoted earlier might technically fall foul of this rule if it was interpreted sloppily. So this is the reason why the Labour Party hasn't adopted the definition in full. This is the reason why a lot of people on the left are worried about this, because they think it could be used as a stick to beat people who criticise Israel. Well, the reverse danger is that this will weaken the ability of the Labour Party to to, to go after anti-Semites and kick them out of the yes. party. But is that true? Like, to what extent will this, well, leaving out these examples, hamstring hmm. the ability of the Labour disciplinary procedures to deal with this problem? I struggle to see. I can't see yeah. it will. It wouldn't. It won't weaken the response. I can't see how. I struggle to see a, a case in which someone who is be, being anti-Semitic and using anti-Semitic language or using Israel as a dog whistle for anti-Semitic language. I struggle to see a case in which these two specific examples would be the only, the only anti-Semitic thing they'd ever done or said. If that's hmm. the case, then they are a bloody good actor. I I, yeah. I I I just don't think it's a problem. I just don't think, practically speaking, it'll be a problem now. I accept that a lot of people, a lot of Jewish people in the Labour Party are feeling a little concerned that... Which they have every right to do. Of course. And it's a phenomenon across Europe that anti-Semitism is back. Yeah, unfortunately, it appears to be on the rise basically everywhere. France in particular is is suffering at the moment. And anti-Semitic attacks have gone up in the last few years. And the Labour Party should be at the forefront of making sure that doesn't happen Mm. in Britain. And if it does start to happen, fighting back against it. Because the Labour Party is institutionally an anti-racist party and that's part of our job and also you know partially because historically jewish people in britain and throughout europe and the world have been at the forefront of the left i mean karl marx for example but also john mm. landsman the current head of momentum is jewish you know the, uh, the battle of cable street where the um oswald mosey and his fascists were stopped in the 30s again a massive proportion of those people who can, came out to march against fascism were jewish so mm. you know we have to protect our jewish comrades from those who would do them harm in the name of anti-semitism but that cause is not served by fostering more divisions within the Labour Party by equating the criticism of Israel and, the, and in particular the current Israeli government with anti-Semitic speech because they are not the same thing. There is an angle here where so a recurring feature on the left is something that, a problem on the left, is something that people often call the narcissism of small differences. Oh, yes. That people will put a lot more effort into arguing with people who are relatively agreeing with them over a small difference than they will over people who disagree with them enormously because you don't perceive the distance so much if they're very far away. Yeah. 
So we're arguing over a couple of very specific examples within the definition that the Labour Party is using. The Conservative Party has not adopted any of the definition. It does not have a definition or a specific disciplinary procedure for anti-Semitism. No, and it should be noted that polling shows that the number of people in the Conservative Party who support some anti-Semitic positions is higher than that in Labour. Although hmm. it is down on previous years overall. I mean, Labour is down yeah, on previous absolutely. years as well. So, and down on, it's worth mentioning, down on since before Corbyn yeah. was leader. It's dropped since he's become leader. <laughs> and obviously it should be zero. You know, frankly, frankly oh, you know, there is no reason for any person in the Labour Party or the Labour movement as a whole to be anti-Semitic. Like, it, it's just, it conflicts with just the core principles that socialism, social democracy, yeah. even liberalism are supposed to respect. So, Yeah, the statistics that we're quoting here it's still, in, in the absolute numbers, it's still astonishingly high. Way higher than I would have expected when I first was researching yes. this. Yes, yes. So it, it's definitely, it is definitely a problem. But it's not a problem that's peculiar to Labour. It's not a problem that's peculiar to the Labour left. It's not a problem that's peculiar to Corbyn supporters. And the attempt to make it one, the attempt to associate anti-Semitism with Jeremy Corbyn in particular and with the Labour left in general, is a cynical ploy on behalf of certain members of the Labour right, plus an egged on by the media and the Tory party, to make socialism and Jeremy Corbyn's leadership unpalatable to sections of the public who might otherwise support them over the right. right. That's, all, that's what it is. You know, it's... It, it, it's... And, it's and, it, and it actively harms the cause of trying to stamp out anti-Semitism yes. as well. It's very much muddying the waters of what should be a campaign to kick this poisonous ideology out of not just the Labour Party, but Britain and the world yeah. in general. There's been another thing that which has happened since we last uh, attempted to record this, which we should probably bring up, which is um, mm-hmm. Labour NEC member Pete Willsman, who was elected as part of the... elected to the NEC as part of the, the campaign that was backed by Momentum and other kind of left-wing Labour organisations, who I suspect, therefore, unfortunately, I voted for because I did vote in the most recent NEC elections. He, he has made some statements. So here, I'm quoting him. How many people in this room have seen anti-Semitism in the Labour Party? and instructed them to put their hands up. When they did do that, he responded, I'm amazed, I've certainly never seen any. That's a quote from an Owen Jones article, which I will link in the show notes. Um, so so if, if Jewish people in the Labour Party say that there is, they're not making no, it no, up. They lie. It's worth taking their and word for it. We've all seen it. You know, we, we are aware <laughs> yeah. that anti-Semites exist within the Labour Party. To deny the existence of anti-Semitism is somewhere on the spectrum from pathetically naive to an active dog whistle. I don't know where Pete Wilson mm. I don't know him well enough. I know that Tom Watson has tweeted that he's always hated Wilson and that you know he finds him a bully and all of this. Tom Watson is, of course, a member of the Labour, what you would call the Labour old right. I've also seen, obviously... Yeah, he's a union yeah. man, isn't he? I've also seen Owen Jones, Billy Bragg, people firmly on the Labour left, say that they want him to step down. Um, so so this is, seems to be it seems to be pretty clear that people across the Labour movement are opposed to this person in particular and what he said and that he... Mm-hmm. And that he should step down from his position and Bugger off that again. Whether that's because he's simply being naive, whether that's because he's being actively anti-Semitic, I don't know or care. Frankly, if you don't, if you're stupid enough to say that anti-Semitism within the Labour Party doesn't exist, you have no business sitting on the NEC. Hmm. Damage is done, but whether it's intentional yes. or not, it will be damaging for someone with those views to be precisely in charge of things like this. Yeah. So, like with the Ken Livingstone thing, as a practical measure, you should just step down and shut up because you don't hmm. want to damage the Labour Party anymore than and- you have either deliberately or not, encourage this problem to continue within them. Absolutely. Encourage genuine anti-Semites if someone at the top is saying yeah. something like that. because they think they're getting away with it and they can't be yeah. allowed to get away like with it. Like how um, uh, xenophobic attacks increased after Brexit. Yeah. You can't say that Vote Leave was endorsing that necessarily. But neither were they ignorant. But, yeah. So, 
Yeah. Um, violence in Northern Ireland, anyone? Uh, should we do the nice thing of the Northern... No, let's do Northern Ireland. We, we ha- I think we should, we should hit it. We, we, we'll try and skim over it, but yeah. I don't want to ignore Northern Ireland because they get ignored far too often by people on the mainland. As yes, they do. It's part of... It's our responsibility to talk about it. Come yeah, on. It's depressing. It's just very depressing. This entire episode is so depressing. We're having to... I would like to remind everyone listening, this is the second time we're recording this. It's so, so depressing yeah. to go back through <laughs> really the same draining. talking points. It's so... It's soul-crushing. If the, if my computer eats this one again, then I I might break it with hammers. <laughs> I just... This is, this is, this is soul-crushing. So... The tendency of the left to be professionally pessimistic, which we have to fight against. We have to fight for hope. It's not being served by this episode. But, it, I mean, how can you be optimistic when everything is just I know. racism? <laughs> this is the problem. It's not fun. It is very... No, it's not fun. All right, let's get on with it. So, on the 12th of July, 1690, the Battle of the Boyne was fought between the forces of the deposed Catholic King James II and the usurping Dutch Prince William of Orange, now King William the whatever. We're starting at the beginning. Yes, then. absolutely. <laughs> now King William the Third. Now, Mr. Orange. This battle is commemorated every year by some people who call themselves the Orange Order. Now, these people, for those who don't know, are what we like to call extremist Protestants. And yeah. they very, very much are pro-remaining part of the, e- of the, the EU, of the UK. <laughs> <laughs> they are, to put it mildly, n- not always very nice people. On the other side, you have some people called dissident Republicans. These are people more extremist than people like Jerry Adams, who was never a member of the IRA. Wink, 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 nudge, nudge. Wink. Who I still believe that the whole of the island of Ireland should be united in a free Irish republic, independent of the. Yes. Now, the dissident Republicans are people on the Republican side of this who support United Ireland, who reject the peace deal in Northern Ireland that was signed a few decades ago. Yes. Now, who support continuing an open conflict there? Every year at the anniversary of the Battle of the Boyne on the twelfth of July, there tend to be some disturbances. Recently. They haven't turned that violent, which has been good. But this year, unfortunately, that streak was broken and we had some problems. So there were there was a hijacking of a bus full of passengers. 13 vehicles were set on fire in and around Belfast, while young dissident Republicans threw petrol bombs at police during a fifth night of disorder in the Bogside area of Derry. Um, we've had, obviously, the traditional Orange Order marches, but then the Loyalist Paramilitary UVF Ulster Volunteer Force mm. threatened to orchestrate and participate in serious disorder in retaliation to the clearing of bonfires. There have been shots at police in what the police, the Telegraph, Belfast Telegraph described as a blatant bid to murder police. There was a pipe bomb that was found in East Belfast and possibly most inflammatorily, if that's a word, uh, industrial firework type explosives were thrown through the windows of former Sinn Féin President Jerry Adams and party activist and former IRA commander Bobby Story's homes. By dissident Republicans, I should point out, not by loyalists. Hmm. So you said Derry this time. First time we recorded this, you hedged your bets. Did I? I yeah. suspect I was quoting. Yeah, you see, you, as I recall, you said London Derry or Derry. I'll say Derry because I think it sounds better. I believe I did say that. Mm. Yeah, I was quoting for an article which Don't I can link, but that, that's ah fair enough. But I think I was quoting last time as well. Oh, so enough. yeah, I'll just make it clear that we're not taking a side. No, I, by saying I prefer Derry. <laughs> the word Derry. That does not indicate no. that I prefer the re- Republican position. Yeah, but in, in the name of the song, the London Derry or the Derry Air. Mm. The derriere means the bum in that French. That is true. And in in, so. in the case of that song, I would say London derriere to avoid that amusing but unwelcome <laughs> mix-up. But as a general principle, I think derry sounds better than London derry. I'm sorry, but it, I just do. 
Fair I enough. also think almost everyone in Derry calls it Derry. Like I don't think anyone calls it London Derry. Even even oh, even like um even the Unionists don't bother. So the Royalists. The Royalists, yes. The Calvinists. Well the thing is Roy- Royalist as a as a as a word specifically refers to the people in a conflict where one royal family has usurped another and royalist refers to the people who support the restoration of the original. So like the royal Oh right, so they're not royalists. So, so exactly. Yeah. So the the royalists in this particular case would actually the be Jacobites. the um yeah. the Catholics. But they're Republicans. Although they are now Republicans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very confusing. So basically the reason why this particular um, well, we, we you know we obviously don't know the reason why, but the speculation is that the reason why this year has been particularly bad for violence around the anniversary of the Battle of the Boyne is that Brexit, basically. Brexit's yeah. terrible. So Brexit's terrible. Yeah, that's it, really. Especially if Bye. you're Irish. So especially if you're Northern Irish. The Conservative Party has this weird position whereby they want to leave the European Union. Yeah, that is weird. It is odd. Well, where that's come from? <sighs> Very strange. But they don't want a hard border oh, on the island of Ireland. Very sensible, because this could cause... No one wants no, that. No, exactly. Very sensible. This could cause a resurgence of violence. It will make people very unhappy. You particularly might see attacks on customs infrastructure, attacks on security forces, and so on. No one wants this to occur. Apart mm. from the dissident Republicans and loyalist paramilitaries, but put them to one side. They are silly people. On the other hand, they also don't want a border in the Irish Sea. This is because they are the Conservative and Unionist Party, and also because they are popped up by the Democratic Unionist Party, both of which... Who do not want to be separated from the rest of the UK. Sort of... It's in the name. Mm. Fair enough. I also don't think that's a good idea. But they also want to completely cut off, or at least certain members of the Tory party want to completely cut off. And ideally, I think the Tory party as a whole wants to leave the customs union and the single market. These three objectives cannot be reconciled with one another. If you leave the customs union and the single market, as the UK as a whole, you must have a hard border on the island of Ireland. If just Great Britain leaves, there must be a border in the Irish Sea. So this is proving something of a problem, because now no one in Northern Ireland or the Republic of Ireland, or indeed anywhere else, knows what the hell is going on. And this tends to cause tensions. Because <laughs> people like to know Everyone's what the hell uneasy, is going on. And a bit scared, and, and they don't like it. And it's exacerbating every other problem that's happening in the world. Yeah. So, oh. there are basically two positions on this. One is... This is a brief flare-up. Hopefully, once Brexit is sorted out, tensions will resolve themselves and we won't have any of this again. Yes, because it's, it's the uncertainty which is causing the problem, really. Yeah. Yeah. The other position is, if Brexit isn't resolved satisfactorily, then this could be the beginning of a ramping back up of violence. There's been talk of a return to the Troubles, which, of course, is the sort of slightly euphemistic name given to the long period of, essentially, mm. civil war within Northern Ireland. That has not and happened. That yet. has not happened We yet. are quite a long way from yes. that. And no one wants and it. And hopefully that will not occur, because <laughs> that would be bad for everybody. Especially people in Northern Particularly, Ireland. Particularly, but good. also people elsewhere. I mean, bad for yeah, everyone. Not good. People living in the Grand Hotel, near in or near the Grand Hotel in Brighton, should probably, you know, make alternative <sighs> arrangements. It's really depressing. It's so depressing. Sorry. <laughs> Carry on. Well, basically, I tend to be of the opinion. Hopefully, this isn't the start of a new set of troubles, but also, <laughs> I can see it happening if there is a hard border on the island of Ireland. And yeah, I don't see it. The border in the Irish Sea thing. Is is for the, for the birds. It's not going to happen. The Conservative Party wouldn't allow it. Even if they did, the DUP wouldn't allow it. It's not going to happen. There will not be a hard border between Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom. It would uh, and the Great Britain rather. It would mean the breakup of the United Kingdom. No Prime Minister wants to preside over that. Yes. So that really takes us down to two, which is hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, or we stay in the single market at least for goods and the customs union. Mm. I obviously would prefer the third B. would be. 
a United Ireland. Yes, just that's true. Just mentioning that that, that is also an option. It's a f- I don't think anyone would no. really like. It's theoretically <laughs> that would have its own problems. <laughs> that would make some people very unhappy as well. Yeah, <sighs> and that's not it's not a policy for a British person to recommend either. That's for Irish people. Absolutely, too. it's you know if frankly if the majority of people in Northern Ireland voted to become part of the Republic of Ireland, that would solve quite a lot of headaches for a lot of people. But I don't think it's going to happen. So we're down to... So the other option is soft Brexit. Yeah. So either we stay in the single market for goods in the customs union or violence, violence everywhere. Yes. But that will topple the government if that happens. If she does soft Brexit, the Tory party won't have it. But good... She being the prime minister. Yeah, exactly. But uh, as my grandmother would say, who's she, the cat's mother? Yeah. Yeah. That's why why I... uh, I clarified, because that is rude. But on the other hand, what if she's able to pass it through the Parliament with support from some well, Labour members? then it'll happen, but a government will still probably come down. Because if if you start trying to get your own bills through on the back of votes that come from people who never wanted you to be Prime Minister in the first place, you're you're setting yourself up to lose a no-confidence vote in the, in the Parliament, if not in your own party. I believe we call that the Jim Callaghan effect. <laughs> yes, very much so. But, you know, I'm fine with that. I mean, it's a great solution as far as I'm concerned. Soft Brexit followed by the Tory government falling, an election in which presumably Labour will win because no one likes to be like forced yeah, into an that's election. probably more likely than anything because I'm thinking on my feet, but... Best way to think. I think that in any case, it's very unlikely that Theresa May survives Brexit. The only, She has gone through so many things that would normally kill a Tory leader, but no one wants to be Prime Minister when Brexit happens. Yeah. So they've kept her. So I think even if she manages to handle it perfectly, she's still likely to face a leadership challenge as soon as Brexit's over anyway. Who do you reckon? Mog? Oh. We did an episode a little while ago which was a little jovial about the prospect of a Jacob Rees-Mogg government. This was because uh, I think at the time we both thought it was a bit of a joke and wouldn't happen. I'd like to retrospectively retract those comments. I'm going to stop making comments like that now because it's happened so many times. Yeah. <laughs> actually, to be fair, not from me. I actually saw Trump coming. That's... That's I'm going to tout myself there. As soon as he announced he was running, I thought, hang on a minute. You thought he'd win straight away? He could win, yeah. I thought it would be... You know what? I, I, my vote, my bets for the 2016 votes were Brexit would be 52-48 the other way. The other way. And yeah. I thought Cl- Clinton-Trump would be 55-45 in favour of Clinton. That was what I was betting going into those the, two. The second one's not that far off. But neither are, like, stupidly far off. But yeah. it was just like... it just moved, the needle. Well, you got the Clinton on the right way round. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's just it's just America's things. not really. Tomorrow. But I think if if it had been fifty five forty five, really weird stuff would have to have happened with the college to make her not yeah. win. In fact, really weird stuff happened anyway. She won by like three million votes because this happened before with Bush and Al yeah. Gore, but Bush only won by a few hundred thousand votes. Yeah, it was which is why it came down to just Trump Florida. Lost the popular vote by millions of votes and still won the electoral college, and he won the electoral college by a long way. That's true. As that well. is true. It wasn't like he just lost the popular vote and he just won the electoral college. He lost the vote by a long way and won the electoral college by a long way. It's really weird. It's because he won a lot of the Rust Belt states by like half a percent. Yeah. Like a higher, and then thing. Clinton won California by a huge degree. And... It's because the the electoral college, by its very nature, doesn't award votes proportionally. At least for like the Democratic primary, if you win like forty five percent of the votes in a seat, you get forty five percent of the electoral college votes yeah, from yeah. that. I've heard a suggestion. This is a bit of a tangent now. Yeah, but, um, that that California should divide into three states. I think it was taken quite seriously. There's a ballot initiative for it um, because then they would have six senators rather than mm. two and. And more representation, basically, which is reasonable. I mean, they've got a bigger population than Canada. Mm. I think a bigger economy than us. I, I believe Britain. so. Yeah. The thing is, yeah. a lot, a lot of people in the north are quite right wing, though. 
I would be concerned if Canada did divide. Yeah, outside of the actual coastal area, yeah. there's quite a lot of I would be concerned if Canada did divide in three, you'd actually end up... California. Yeah, that's what I said, isn't it? You said Canada. I apologise. I would be that's concerned right. if California did divide in three, you'd end up with, like, one state in the north that was quite Republican, the coastal one around San Francisco and LA, which was, like, stupidly Democratic, but it already is, and then, like, a weird one. Yeah, you'd still have all of the Democratic voters still all in one state. Yeah. And then you just hand the Republicans two extra states. Whether you hand them two, they might just get one, and then the third one might be like a battleground state. But either way, I don't think it's yeah, actually a good idea. I can see, I can see it in Texas. You've had one around San Francisco, one around LA. Yeah, maybe, and then one for everywhere else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's fair. Those Republicans don't get represented. They'd probably be about equal population, like yeah. LA, San Francisco, and rest. Sacramento mm. is quite big, isn't it? But it's not huge. It just happens to be the capital. It's not enormous. It's near San Diego, isn't it? Oh, I think it's the right place. I don't know America that well. Sacramento is the state capital. San Diego is, I think, a bit right. further San Diego's south. right near the border yeah. with Mexico. Yes. Anyway, this is a massive tangent now, and we're, yeah. we are speculating about things, but a little more speculation. It's getting quite nerdy, If you actually. please, because I, Texas could do it. Texas could split into five. It's a provision in its constitution which that allows it to sense. split into five. Austin, north, yeah. south, east, and west. very Texas. much make sense, actually, because quite large parts of Texas are actually becoming quite democratic. Austin as well. in particular. Especially since, uh, yeah, urbanization and immigration. And, like, Dallas as well is uh, really democratic. Yes. So if, if Texas split, I think you'd probably end up with like the Austin, the Capital Territory, and then the, the Dallas, whichever one had Dallas in it, would be quite democratic. Mm. And then the other three mm. would be quite Republican. Um, it's just reminded me that Ted Cruz is facing quite a serious challenge from a fairly left-wing Democrat in the Senate. Yeah, I saw role. that as well. Yeah. I don't remember any of the details, so but... On a good day, he might uh, uh, flip one of Texas's uh, Senate seats blue, which would be nice. And he's a fairly good Democrat as well. He doesn't take corporate money at all, any of it, and he supports you know, universal health care. That's pretty good. I'm really worried about the midterms because I, I think there's a decent chance that the House goes, but the Senate stays Republican, and then we just have gridlock for hours. Yeah, just because of the um, I suppose it's better than Republican. Controls. True, but the, the current I would like the Senate map for 2018 is just so bad yeah, for Democrats. It's really unfortunate. I don't understand why they don't have it. I don't understand why it's a third go every two years. Why isn't it half go every two years, and then you just have one from each state change every time? That would make so much more. That's sense. a good point. There's there's two senators from each state. So, uh, yeah, that's a good point. I assume it's because it, they used to be appointed, so it didn't really matter. Yeah, they were appointed by state legislature. Yeah, so maybe it didn't matter as much. I don't know. It's bloody weird. Anyway, we... It gives you a longer term. Yeah, true. It gives you six years rather than four. Uh, yes, Northern mm. Ireland. I think, to be honest, we probably covered most of it. Yeah. It's just it's just a bit worrying, and it, it needed talking about, but I don't have a solution, so... Yep, fair enough. Yeah. Before we go, I would like to shout out to our bros in... Neckbeard Death Camp. Uh-huh. So, Neckbeard Death Camp are a raw black metal band which describe themselves as fedora smashing militant black metal. Their new album, White Nationalism is for Basement Dwelling Losers, came out, I believe, uh, yeah, July the 21st, 2018. So, it's just, just come out, uh, featuring such tracks as Zyklon B, but with B as like the little 4chan thing, and Incel Warfare. And their outro may be the best title of any song ever created which is the fetishization of Asian women despite a demand for a pure white race. So, fedora smashing militant black metal, uh, white nationalism is for basement dwelling losers. That, that's, that's, that's what you need to type into Google. Go and give it a listen. The lyrics are brilliant. You can't hear most of them, but you can, you can read them as you, as you listen along, and your life will be vastly improved by mm. just quite a lot of shouting about the alt-right culture. being terrible. Yeah, that's our, that's our culture. you didn't like art. The thing is, when I say I don't like art, I don't like what... I don't like... I think what no, I get your point. I, I think what I mean is when I say I don't like art, what I mean is I don't like art students. 
<laughs> or anything that they like. Apologies to our listeners. I'm sure you're. <laughs> do we have any art student listeners? Probably. I don't know. Possibly. If we do, I'm sorry. I, I'm sure. You, I hope that, I'm sure you're lovely. Yeah. I've got I've got art student friends. God, listen to me. Um, <laughs> Some of my best friends are art students. I, I didn't say my best friends, but <laughs> I nearly called you Brian then. <laughs> Yeah, quite. Some people call the me reason that. is because I'm. I was, as I said, how I was looking over at my other screen where you're. It's just a picture of your face and your name. And obviously, I read the Brian, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fine. Call me Brian. For <sighs> it's been nearly two hours. We should probably go. Yeah, all right, <laughs> David. It's been lovely talking to you. It's been lovely talking to you. We'll be back in a week to discuss Tommy Robinson's Zimbabwe and probably some other things. But <laughs> who knows? Sounds yeah. nice. And also for those people who my perfect Sunday, your perfect. Well, it'll probably be Thursday. Be Sunday by the time it I would release be it. My perfect it Sunday would be to have, you know, all the candidates for the Zimbabwe election, Tommy Robinson, and probably some other things around for Sunday lunch, and me, obviously, Lovely. and you, yeah. of course. They're all just silently sitting there whilst we discuss yeah. it. We've just ticked over the two-hour mark, so I think this is a good place to. For those who are confused, okay, those who are confused, by the way, at the fact that this podcast is less than two hours long, that's because I cut lots of bits out and also speed it up. Slightly. Yeah, we edit, but it's two hours of recorded material. So that's quite enough. And it's all depressing. So depressing. So, so depressing. It's really hard. <laughs> You've been listening to Revolutionary Dispatches. Thank you, comrades, for your time and attention. Viva la Revolution. Revolution.